I think that if the coronavirus sort of destroyed or disrupted higher education the second half of this year, then we have an opportunity to rebuild that in radical ways. Welcome back to TG2Cast. I'm Arthur Carabelli, co-founder of Teachers Going Gradeless. What follows is the second half of my conversation with college educators Mahabali, Jesse Stamel, and Asao Bianoe. As college institutions struggle with the implications of COVID-19, it's important for them to place equity and access at the center of considerations about ways in which college can resume. As Professor Noe pointed out, however, we also have an opportunity to fundamentally revolutionize the academy, its administration, and the way we identify and support student success. Jesse, you you were tweeting a little bit recently about, um, you know, following up a little bit on Maha's um, needing some flexibility, needing flexibility. And you were talking a little bit about what does and does not constitute asynchronous learning. Um, So it's clear that you've seen some troubling trends about what constitutes equity and access. what can you help us kind of parse that out a little bit as in terms of um, what are what are some um, productive practices versus some ones that are just checking off that box but are not necessarily um, increasing equity and access for our students? Uh, yeah, sure. I, I can say that I, the the most troubling trend that I've seen has been people and institutions talking about putting cameras into classrooms, putting cameras into classrooms so that when we go face to face in the fall, the students who can't be present, they can record or live stream into Zoom the work that happens face to face in that classroom. And the thing I specifically was responding to was the was people calling that asynchronous mm. learning. Um, and and what I push back on is I push back on the idea that making a recording of something and then making that recording available after the fact to people does not constitute asynchronous learning to me. Mm-hmm. It It is a sort of carbon copy or hitting save on something <laughs> that happened face to face. It's a record. It isn't it doesn't actually give students access to what I see as the most productive part of that work that we do together, which is dialogue, conversation, uh, contribution, student participation. And so um, I two things I guess I would say is I, I think that we should start from a place of imagining thoughtful, asynchronous approaches to use with students in the fall and really any in any teaching uh, experience. The reason being because the students who will need the asynchronous opportunities are the students who are most likely to be marginalized, struggling, certainly in the fall. They're the students who are most likely to be ill, the most likely to be caring for loved ones at home, the most one likely to be dealing with housing and food insecurity. The you know, Those are the students who need um access the most and a copy of a, you know, being a fly on a wall for a Zoom session, it isn't, it, it isn't providing that for those students. The other thing I would say is that there are just extreme uh, security and privacy concerns with putting cameras into classrooms. The idea of this event resulting in mm. cameras being in 
40% of the classrooms around the world. Like that's horrifying to me for the privacy and security uh, concerns that I have about that. So I guess that's what I would push back on. We need to be more thoughtful so that we aren't presuming that somehow making a recording of something and putting cameras in classrooms is going to increase access. Yeah, so taking that taking that kind of impermeable screen, you know, that would be the interface for those students who don't have access to the actual face-to-face experience, uh, and then also all the privacy concerns that go along with that. How do you build in some of those points of access? You know, so a student that does need to access learning in a remote way, what are some suggestions that you have in terms of, of, of providing those points of access that people are going to be able to access and is going to give them a somewhat more equitable experience of the learning process? I'd love to hear what some of both Asao and uh, Maha have to say about this. One of the things that both of them have talked about, and I've also talked about here, has been the idea that we need to create environments where students can construct their own learning, where where the classroom is not something that's built for students, but constructed by students. Mm -hmm. And being the fly on the wall in a Zoom call does not give students the space uh, and the freedom that they need in order to construct their environment. Uh, and so I guess I would say we can talk practical examples of how you might do that, but starting from a space of that person who has to be at home because they're chronically ill and can't come to campus, how do I make sure that that person is constructing our classroom? Maha, you have uh, organized hybrid hallway conversations. I, I mean, I, I think you have some experience of of uh, facilitating some points of access for people. What are your thoughts about about allowing for that or, or providing for that? So with virtually connecting, that's what you're describing as those hybrid hallway conversations. We have uh, an article about intentionally equitable hospitality. And so this is the term that we use. We, we're not using terms that other people have used about hospitality, but this is, this is basically what you're asking about. It's mm-hmm. how do you create a space there's this situation that a lot of pragmatic people do where they create a space for the norm. And then if mm-hmm. someone needs help, they accommodate them or uh, they include them into a space that's already been created for other people. But intentionally right. equitable hospitality is you, first of all, you try to co-create the space with them. As Jesse said, not just when you say, let's develop a rubric together as a class and you just open it up for everyone, there will be a few dominant students who speak loudly and speak first and their rubric Mm -hmm. is what's going to end up there. You need to think about how do I make sure that every student in the class has an opportunity to speak? You need to make sure that the kind of questions and situations you're creating are easier for the minorities, the women, the marginalized students, those who have Mm -hmm. mental health issues, you know? Um, And so when you think about those students first, not last, and not, by the way, and not only when a problem happens, you know? Obviously, not every single type of... uh, minority or, or form of marginality or everything you will imagine ahead of time. But as you keep doing it better, you're going to be it's going to be easier for you to figure out how to deal with it. Um, so intentionally, equitable hospitality puts them first in the co-creation process, ensures that they create the space, ensures that they make a lot of the decisions for themselves, ensures you help them make the decisions and understanding, for example, in, in the hybrid mm-hmm. hallway conversations with virtually connecting, um, first of all, recognizing that whatever you center the situation around will determine a lot of things that happen afterwards. So if you center your content on white male authors, you are already mm-hmm. giving people a signal, no matter how much agency you give them beyond that. And so, for example, right. in Equity Unbound, where we have this intercultural curriculum, we try to make sure that we have 
um, authors and presenters who are from all over the world, from marginalized communities and so on. Um, and then once they're in the space, you need to make sure that the dominant voices don't silence the minority voices because that, that will be what will happen naturally <laughs> in any yeah. situation. So just giving, like if the teacher was silent the entire class, this does not mean it's an equitable class. No. You have to let listen to those. You have to find ways to listen to ones who may not want to speak and who may right. want to speak to you privately. You have to figure out ways of finding them and creating spaces that are um, welcoming to them as well. And in mm. the middle of doing it, keep iterating on it because you will never get it right perfectly every time. And just keep iterating and changing and, and, and finding different, giving them different paths to choose from, different valid paths that are not second rate. I think what Jesse was right. talking about, those cameras in the classroom, this is giving them a second class version of what the privileged students who were able to make it a class are getting. It also assumes, right. of course, a teacher-centric classroom, which is another problem. And it also assumes there's no sensitive content happening and the privacy issues, of course, are huge. Um, yes. But the, the main problem with it is that it further privileges the privileged student who's, who's either healthy or who can make it to the class or whatever. And then, so what you're trying to do is not create second-rate experiences for people who are marginalized, but trying to make sure that the situation is accessible and and cult, not just economically accessible in terms of connection but culturally and politically accessible that students have power in deciding how things happen like in my institution the pass fail decision came mainly from a student uh the students collected signatures to ask for it and that's mm -hmm. what pushed the senate to vote on it and then of course there was a lot of faculty who agreed as well but it came from the students and that's really that's really powerful when it comes that way Asal, you are uh, Dean of Academic Affairs, Equity and Inclusion. So although your your class is, has been going pretty well, you have to be concerned about how this is all going to unfold, um, you know, across, I guess, the college at large. Um, what, it, what kind of guidance do you want to give your teachers as they make this, um, you know, journey toward next year? Yeah, well, and I think it's what I would uh, offer is has there's really maybe um, a kind of uh, overlay to what uh, I heard uh, Jesse and uh, Ma just saying. Uh, and that is, I think that if the coronavirus um, sort of destroyed or disrupted higher education this uh, this second half of this year, this last academic year, then yeah. we have an opportunity to rebuild that in radical ways. Um, mm. That is not tweak it, not make it an old, ver a new version of an old thing, an old system, but make it something new, a new system. And what I mean, let me, I'll just use the one example that I think you're, you're, uh, you're drawing on, or you're asking about, and that is um, that something Ma was just uh, discussing with access. So yes. for me, what I hear Jesse and Ma saying is they're really asking a very fundamental question or, or asking teachers and administrators to ask a very fundamental question about what we do and how we do it. And that is, mm. what does access mean? And what is really being accessed when we say we're providing more access? 
So mm-hmm. if you put cameras in classrooms, you as Jesse and Maha were both discussing, you you give a second rate as a, as a version of that first rate thing, right? So that's right. not really that's that's sort of access, but it's not really access to the to the stuff that I heard Jesse saying that was really education, right? It's the mm-hmm. learning and the labor that's going on. It's the dialogue. It's the it's the stuff that we really want students um, struggling through with, et cetera, with us together. It's it's more challenging um, if you've never thought about it in an asynchronous or online or remote way before. But I think that is actually can be a very rewarding process for us if we are up to the challenge. That is, if I think as educators, teachers, individually or institutionally, if we're up to rethinking what does access mean and what do we really mean when we say we're giving more access? Like what is actually being ac- accessed? So mm. that's, that's to me, that's how, um, that's how I'm seeing uh, or hearing the, the really great uh, uh, ideas that I, that I just heard from, from Maha and uh, Jesse. Well, let me, let me ask you just one last question, and it is more about just kind of the future of college. Um, you know, obviously, college universities have expressed deep concerns. They're already kind of coming out with um, not going to be able to hold on to everyone, so on and so forth, um, that, that COVID is having this short and this long-term impact, uh, human, financial, operational, et cetera, pretty much across the board. What do you feel, and, and you've already covered a lot of this, but I just want to see any final thoughts on what does higher education most need to focus on moving forward? And and why don't I start again with you, Asao, just um, from your position as, as dean and kind of having something of a bird's eye view here, what do you think as you, as you hear all these sort of issues, how do we... Uh, retool education, tweak education toward this more accessible, equitable experience, but at the same time deal with some of the very real financial and operational problems that are happening due to COVID-19. Yeah, I mean that's a really complicated question because it's it it, it it's really different for each institution in place, right? Um, but right. let me just say generally what I what I think I know, and I and I could be wrong on a few things, but I think what I think I know is that what institutions do well is bureaucratic stuff, and mm-hmm. grades are the are the the epitome of of the bureaucracy. That is what grades really are. Are, they're not really good assessment. They're not good learning. What they are is really efficient ways to categorize and rank and and do the services that edu- that institutions at large feel they need to do. But it's not necessarily the mission of a university. Like I don't know if I've ever seen a university that said our mission is to give every student the, the best grade and most accurate grade possible. What they want to do is create new leaders and new um, thinkers and and innovative um, folks who can make things happen in their communities and things like that. These are these right. have nothing to do with the administrative task of providing and distributing grades to students based on their performances. So I think part and and the reason I'm focusing harping on grades as a way is because grades are also the the, the lock on the door to the academy oftentimes and opportunity. Mm-hmm. And what's what's behind the grades are standards and are the expectations that we get 
that we, that are that come down to us from our disciplines and from our elders in the academy and, and other places. And those are are oddly enough, not so oddly enough, come from very familiar places. So mm-hmm. that is, we can we know where we could find um, the the habits of language that are most preferred in most universities and colleges. All of them really uh, where they come from. And that, that disenfranchises a lot of, of, of students, especially the ones who most are in, the, in a position to revolutionize and make big changes. But, they're, but it also means they're not, they don't have access usually, or at least they don't right. have very good access. They have that second rate access. So I think that we need to be thinking very carefully and rethink very carefully what we mean when we, when we say we're teaching students and we're teaching towards some outcome. How, where do those outcomes come from? Why do we have them? And what what do we what are the measures by which we are are judging ourselves? I really, really I hate to do this, but I feel like I should. ASU has this wonderful charter, um, and it, the first part of the charter starts with we we measure our success by those we include, not by those we exclude, and how well they succeed. So for me, that was a, a really, really important. Acknowledgement, and I can tell you firsthand, only having been here a year in this role, every conversation, every everything we do, all decisions really revolve around trying to meet the spirit and the and the values of that charter. Trying to find ways to include and measuring our success by inclusion, not by exclusion, not by how many how many elite students we could get or whatever, or how or how many uh, students we can do what you know, grade distribution, that kind of thing. I'm more interested in inclusion and access, and those things to me um, seem to be the important, very difficult questions to try to answer in the in the coming decade or two or three or four. Jesse, what would you say uh, in terms of your answer to some of the short-term and long-term impacts that colleges are experiencing right now? Asao used the phrase learning together. Um, And I think that that's a really important phrase because educational institutions are not just places of learning. They're places of social learning. They're places where we learn together. And an interesting thing that happens with grades is that we spend this time together working as a class. Mm. And then at the end, the teacher is meant to sit down and break every student down, rank them against one another, because that's ultimately what grading systems do. They set students against one another and compare them to one another. And so it becomes this extraordinarily individualistic process, and it makes students into just islands where right. everyone is... So it breaks down the entire relational aspect of what the class had been up until that point. And I think that we need to push against that and we need to see what the benefits of social learning are, what the benefits of learning together can be. And I guess what I've noticed during this pandemic, um, it's something I guess I've noticed before, but haven't noticed as starkly is that institutions often function too much like that as well. They Mm. function like islands. I'm seeing every institution sort of searching for its life raft in this situation. Mm. And I'm not seeing nearly enough institutions coming together and figuring their way out of this problem uh, 
collectively. And I, and I mean that not only within the U.S., but I also mean if you look at the Canadian system, so much of what they're facing and the, and the, the, the stuff that they're facing is quite similar. And so there's no reason that the U.S. even has to just think of itself as its own little island. But we also have to look beyond our borders, not just to Canada, but to well beyond that to think about how do we think about the project of education as a, you know, as a, as a global community. And what would it look like for us to work on some of these problems together? Mm. Um, Ultimately, I loved the way that Asao used grades as a metaphor for how institutions function, because, again, that kind of rank and file Mm-hmm. is something that we do to institutions as well, pitting them against one, one another for scarce resources, literally ranking them, literally grading them, comparing mm-hmm. systems one to the next, watching what each system is going to do before we make decisions about our own system, rather than just having conversations collectively about how we might move forward. And sure, we can do that within a pandemic to try and get through this crisis. But I think, as Asao said, there's so many more pandemics, there are so many more crises that we're dealing with in education. And we could come together to deal with those all as a group. Maha, I'm going to give you the last word. So you, you know, you work with your your own institutions, educators, as they face this unfamiliar, uncertain future. I'm sure you have some ideas about the big picture as well. Uh, what advice do you have just in terms of what do we need to focus on moving forward? So actually, Asal and Jesse have said a lot of what I would have said. So I'm going to try to add some stuff that just adding to what they were saying. One of the really important things uh, as we try to imagine empowered students is that the institution needs to also give agency to faculty themselves and empower them to be able to do these things. Yeah. So, for example, like me trying to do ungrading in an institution that doesn't that needs me to give grades and needs me to have like a B average and that kind of thing doesn't help. I'm trying to do something in the middle of something else that doesn't fit very well. And so it's a struggle and other people find it difficult to imagine. So I think that's one of the important things is like, this also means that taking large decisions about what's happening in the pandemic should involve students and faculty as well. So I think that's important. And that in itself teaches governance and agency that will help students become better citizens, I think, which, this, this, which you know, a lot of the institutions claim to be their goal, but they need to think back about what it is they're doing is if that's helping uh, students really achieve that goal. The other thing um, that I was thinking about, and this builds on something el- else that Jesse mentioned, So a lot of what students actually gain from college is social and cultural capital. So the kind of relationships they build and the sort of how they become a person or an engineer or historian or just a college graduate rather than specifically what they're learning in the classes. And I think what they need to think about is if some of us are not going to be face to face the whole time and there are going to be some online situations, there's going to be a lot of online in life outside of the college classroom, how can they build spaces to help promote that. And one of the the literacies that I think helps with this a little bit is openness literacy. So if faculty and students have this, Mm -hmm. it would be that you're seeking resources from outside the institution, which is also a little bit like what Jesse was saying, where, I mean, for example, I was doing my PhD remotely. So I would visit my institution once a year and visit my supervisor, but I needed support the whole time. And I found online networks to help support me with that. 
Um, so it can be done openly, but it can also be done in a more structured way by institutions actually working together and sort of thinking about how, well, now that everybody's online, if we're all teaching something similar, how can our students learn something together? Which is what Equity Unbound is about, but now pretty much everyone right. could find opportunities uh, for that, and that will help students become able to work in, in these situations as global citizens afterwards. So I think it's, it's I don't like to think about the pandemic, honestly, as an opportunity. It's a really sad situation to to be in. Yes. Um, but but it does help you sort of reshift. It helps you shift your priorities, I hope, and recognize what's really important. Yes. And then, you know, trust what's on that. My guests today have been Maha Bali of the Center of Learning and Teaching at the American University in Cairo, Asao Bianoe of the College of Integrative Sciences and Arts at Arizona State University, and Jesse Stommel, Professor of Digital Studies at the University of Mary Washington. If you'd like more information about Teachers Going Gradeless, check out our website at teachersgoinggradeless.com, our Facebook group, Teachers Going Gradeless, or you can follow us on Twitter at TG2Chat. Please subscribe to the podcast to catch future installments of TG2Cast. Thanks for listening.